My name is Stephen Motika. You are the program director at the Poets House in New York? I am. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Perhaps you could tell me why a literary tourist should visit the Poets House. Well, Poets House is one of a handful of poetry libraries in the world, and we moved to this uh, beautiful new space about three and a half years ago, and we have 50,000 volumes of poetry. The collection is special, I think, of great interest to bibliophiles because it's an open access, open stack collection, and you're not required to fill out a little pink slip to wait for a book that you're curious to look at. You can just go right to the shelf and pull it off. We not only have books, but we have chapbooks, journals um, as well, which is something that's a little rare in most libraries. So we have a pretty diverse, eclectic collection. It's, a, it's an organic collection. It's all donations, so it's not uh, been curated by a whole bunch of librarians. It, it represents the, the poetry community and, and their interests and, and their passions. So we have um, some founding books from our founders, including Elizabeth Cray, who was an important arts administrator here in New York, mm-hmm. and then the collection of the beloved Stanley Kunitz, our other founder, who was Pulitzer Prize winning twice poet laureate, who lived to be nearly 101. So his collection of poetry books or poetry books that he wrote or both? Both. We have all of okay. his books of poetry, and we have some interesting translations. You know, he have the various books that he, you know, the translations of his collections into other languages. Right, and, right. But we also have a lot of his books here, and he, and he was interested in science, so we have some of his science collection, some of his poetry collection. Any, anything annotated went to Princeton. Anything, I was just about to say, yeah. yeah so they, unfortunately. But then again, this, uh, as you've suggested, is more of a, a reader's library and, and reading copies as opposed to anything that might be... Uh, particularly rare or precious. Yeah, I mean, there are rare books just by the nature of a poetry book is printed in addition to three or four hundred yeah. sometimes, and then you, we get a donation of a book that's six years old, and it's rare, de facto rare. Yeah. But I, yeah, I would say, I think reader readers' copies is a great way to think of it. We're not really a library for scholars, academics, or yeah. professional researchers. We're really a library for people who love poetry. And you could be a reader, a writer, uh, curious. People come on off the park here, off the, walking the Hudson River, and yeah. open a book and and gaze out at its gorgeous view. Other people are working on manuscripts. Other people are working on serious reviews. Some people just come here for inspiration. It's uh, just wonderful, though. You can just walk in off the street, free and open to the public, and op- as I said, open access. Um, and the collection is is really. It's organized in a in a, a friendly manner too, like a living room collection. It's A to Z by author, mm-hmm. and no no Library of Congress number or Dewey Decimal. It's is very uh, sort of familiar, like your books at home. And the anthologies are organized by topic. Okay. Um, a book about Emily Dickinson is with her books of poetry. So you just go to one place and you want to focus on Dickinson. You just go to Dickinson on the shelf. Great. So. Okay. And then we have a collect. We have a show every year called the Poets House Showcase, which is a display of all the poetry books published in the last year. Over six hundred American publishers um, send their books. It's organized alpha by publisher, so it's a really great way to get a, uh, a sense of what the field um, is, what's coming out mm-hmm. by which publishers. It's very helpful to young and emerging writers because they can see who's publishing books that you know might be good for, might be of interest to them, or fit their own aesthetics and then those books are added to the collection so we actually are keeping up um, adding more than 2,000 items a year just of new books we keep up that's all donated we do the requesting get all that stuff Mm -hmm. so our collection is pretty current 
And then we're in the process of filling in the back, you know, the older books. I was going to say, do you, are you, how far back are you trying to go to, to Beowulf? Or, uh, sure, of course. <laughs> I mean, the Iliad. I, I mean, our, our strength and our focus is 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 okay. modern and forward. You know, the last hundred years. Yeah. Okay. And some, you know, we have we have really strong representations in some areas, especially New York. Yeah. You know, poetry in the last sixty years. Anything that would have been in Betty and Stanley's orbit, we have very strong representation. And we have odd, odd, cool stuff that, you know, we got because someone discovered who we were and donated a pile of books, and we have them on the shelf. And by cool stuff, you mean what? Oh, it could be a quirky, stapled-together Mimeo booklet from some San Francisco poet in the mid-60s, or it could be... Uh, you know, a, a, a poet whom we consider to be central now, an early publication, like a, you know, something they did in college. Mm-hmm. Um, we have some really beautiful books by presses that came and went by, you know, fine, fine um, art, fine bookmakers or art bookmakers or letterpress printers. We have a chap, as I said, the chapel collection. Sometimes yeah. there's some gorgeous things that were in very limited editions that were just made in someone's basement, but you know, are, are treasures. So the fine press books would be again just as part of the alphabetic listing. Well, we have the chat books are segregated, yeah. and then we do have a few rarer items that are in the in our um, book processing room in the back room, and the librarian is happy to help anyone. And the really exciting thing is our catalog is now online and searchable anywhere via the World Wide Web. So you could be um, looking at our catalog in Tempe in advance of a trip to New York and yeah. kind of prepare a visit here and if something is marked rare you could email us or call us in advance and say oh I'm coming from Tempe, Arizona I would, I would love to see this rarish item and we would, would be happy to set you up with that so that's a new service we provide and there's a lot of books that exist in our catalog that exist in no other library catalog on the globe you know, tiny, tiny little uh, because of these chapbooks yeah, cha- a lot of chapbooks are little small presses that came and went never you know yeah we met them at a book fair we got them into our collection and yeah. they published one book or so it, it's a treasure and yeah. um yeah. i think the whole idea behind poets house being a democratic institution we we collect comprehensively mm-hmm. and at this point we've never um deaccessioned anything that we didn't have at least one copy of so we have some pretty pretty cool uh self-published stuff and as right. you know, self-publishing is a big part of the history of poetry. Uh, you know, so you many. could argue Whitman yes. and Dickinson self-published, and uh, we have... I, I don't know if they'll be gr- considered great poets in 150 years, but we do have some self-published poets who are send us all their materials, and yeah. I don't think you'll find that in Harvard or near Public Library. Or no, no there's, there's usually some kind of, if not snobbish, then certainly there's a, there's a filter of sorts, and you're suggesting... Because of the democratic nature of the the mission, yes, exactly. Bring it on. Yeah, we also have events here, which are great. And if someone's in New York and is interested in coming to a talk or a panel or a reading, they should visit our website, poetshouse.org. Mm-hmm. We have an exhibition right now. We always have exhibitions. Right now, the exhibition is dedicated to the um, work of Alan Cornblum, who is who I interviewed about two two years ago okay. in, so you know in Minneapolis. Yeah, founder of Coffee House Press, and before he founded Coffee House Press, he did this very interesting project called Toothpaste Press, which started as a Mimeo, and then moved to letterpress editions. And you can see in the cases his sort of 
his evolution, um, yes, yeah, yes, evolution. Yes. And then there's a beautiful wall of broadsides. He's a beautiful broadside printer, and there's a couple dozen broadsides there. Mm-hmm. And then we also have some of our permanent art collection. We have a couple paintings by E.E. E. Cummings, which are always on view. And then uh, beloved Stanley Kunitz was a good friend to Philip Gustin. And at Stanley's death, we inherited um, six, Stan, uh, stick, six Gustin pieces. Five of them are poem pictures, which feature the poetry of Stanley Kunitz with the painting by Gustin. And then we have a portrait of Kunitz by Gustin. Um, we also have works by Mary Frank, Dara Park, and others up. So that's also something to come see. So if your interest is more on the art side, yeah, yeah. there's always something to see. This just popped into my mind, but do you have any Patchen? Uh, Kenneth? Kenneth Patchen's, because uh, again, he was kind of connecting the two, wasn't he? We have his books. We don't, unfortunately, have any of his works of art. Yeah. Um, he was a West Coast guy, so we're a little, little less likely that... Um, he, you know, Cummings and Patchen are sort of similarly um, inter interdisciplinary and that there's a lot of Cummings paintings, there's a lot of patch and uh, collage and painting and other things, but um, we, we hopefully now maybe someone will donate something <laughs> yeah. to us. Okay. You know, we don't have an acquisitions budget, so we have to just wait for the wait for the winds to blow us these things. Sure. But, but we're always interested and um, we're committed obviously to books and certainly committed to works of art, broadsides and pieces by artist writers, writer artists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, um, this annual program that you run, it's such a terrific idea. Um, and if, if not, uh, um, uh, I th- it certainly could be, uh, replicatable, um, by other, others, if not, for the entire nation, for their their region, mm-hmm. I would think, and then just the, when I come in here, I think that this is something that could be. This is an, an organization whose um, genesis uh, is is something that could be replicated in in cities elsewhere. Just again to to memor- not memorialize poetry but to have a place for people who love poetry to show up to mm-hmm. to participate in to to read etc sure there are uh, there are some other organizations that have um, spaces of books and and li- whether libraries or bookstores open to the public and have programming um, mm. woodland pattern which is a bookstore with programming in Milwaukee has been around 40 years and w- w- an important part of our um, organization's history is rooted in conversations with them. Very mm-hmm. inspiring place. Mm-hmm. The University of Arizona in Tucson has their poetry center, which is older than Poets House, but for many years was a small house, and now they have a beautiful state-of-the-art facility, sort of like us. They're attached to a university, so it's a little different, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it's still an impressive library, and they do great programs in a beautiful building. And then the Poetry Foundation, in response to their great windfall, decided to also expand a model, I think, based on Poets House and the Poetry Center at Arizona and create a space, a center. So they have a library and a beautiful exhibition area and an auditorium. Yes. So that just opened two years ago. And I think in an age it's increasingly digital and online where bookstores are so threatened and 
uh, I think these resources, nonprofit resources, to represent, to make visible, and to invite in uh, all walks of life to read books and to hold them and to, to spend time with them. Depositories are really important. So we're not that old an institution. We're 20, I guess this is our 27th year. We're, mm-hmm. you know, there are poetry organizations that are much older, but I think the vision of Stanley Kunitz and Elizabeth Cray to create a place for poetry in an increasingly commercialized and expensive and crazed world was really ahead of its time. And I think what you're speaking to is the sort of their vision being born out in reality. And, um, well, yeah, especially as you say, because of the so many bookstores that are that are closing, and the the, the fact that there aren't public spaces in which people can just hang out, discuss the books they've read, or learn about yeah. what books they should read yeah. or might want to read. You are a library, but you're, you're, you're we're not, a non-circulating you're not, library, right? You're not a you're not a bookstore, but you're we're a library and literary center. And I think that under that rubric goes, we've got the programming arm, which is, you know, akin to a, uh, you know, 92nd Street Y performing arts space, you know, San Francisco Poetry Center. We have education and outreach to children, and we have a children's room, which is very popular, and Mm -hmm. 14,000 kids came through our doors for, through class visits last year, all free. We do adult education and classes for poets. Uh, we have a wonderful emerging poets program that supports young writer, young and emerging writers as in finding themselves in their careers. We have um, exhibitions, so we have a sort of museum-y like gallery side. What else am I missing? We have we do a lot. <laughs> I was going to say that. Uh, so under lot, that rubric, we do a lot of different pieces. We think of our mission as being multi-pronged. All all, all coming though from this place for poetry and our online initiatives too it's really the core of what we do is the collection and the place it's not just a physical place but the idea of, 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 a, of a home for poetry is really at the core just one final question and that that has to do with this idea of enabling others to replicate what you've done have you worked with other cities across the country, around the world, that uh, that may want to enjoy the same kind of experience that, that you're offering New Yorkers? Sure. I mean, there's a lot of people that come up to us and say, oh, I want to have a poet's house. And they How just... feasible is that? I mean, oh, it's, it's hard because yeah. uh, it's difficult to fund for something as contemplative and static as poetry books on shelves. And the programmatic side interests funders more, but it's very difficult to actually sustain that over the long period of time. I mean, anyone can come out the door and say, oh, we're going to have a poetry series and, you know, have a few books on the shelves. But to actually make it work, you know, year in and year out, decade after decade, to pay a staff, to keep the lights on, to keep Mm -hmm. the floors clean, to... So how do you do that? Keep inventing. Well, we have, we, our staff works on that. That's what we do. I mean, that's it's the back end. We're raising money. We're kind of coming up with new programs. We're realizing the programs that we've um, initiated already. We're developing further things that we've been working on for years. Mm-hmm. Things like the showcase, for example. Yeah, it's a great idea where you're able to replenish and, and update your library at no cost. Exactly. Except for, but really but we have a, you know a staff and a half working on yeah. that. That's yeah. cost. Yeah. And then... The database, you know, getting this catalog up online, it actually took the actor Bill Murray giving us seed money a dozen years ago to start this process because no one wanted to fund a catalog. None of the foundations 
were interested in funding a catalog for a collection of 30,000 books of poetry, at the, at the time 30,000 books. And Bill Murray said, you guys need a catalog. You know, here's some money to pay someone, just get started on that. And so, he did a brilliant reading of uh, Wallace Stevens on yes, the website. Are, yes. It's lovely. He's yeah. been very good to us. And it really takes, you know, it takes a village. It's everyone that you come in touch with may help you either on the financial end or through their creative possibility or mm-hmm. their community or their passions and interests and you and that's part of what what we do here is to constantly reinvent and keep alive everything we do so for example the showcase we used to do something with the american libraries association mm-hmm. where a version of the sh- showcase would travel to their annual conference in chicago and we would ship all the books there and have a display and we did that for a few years um and that was an important way for librarians to see the books sort of before the World Wide Web really, you know, became what it is today. Mm-hmm. And then that became too expensive. And now we have a web catalog where the thing is available online. And we have, we've moved the showcase to the summer and we make it as part of a summer festival where we do a reading series and sort of celebrate being here in this new place, mm-hmm. which is that in the summer it's really beautiful down here. And you can, people can come for the afternoon, have a picnic and stay for a reading because we're in this park-like setting. So it's a constant reinvention and reinterpretation. Same with our outreach to libraries. We do something called Poetry in the Branches, which helps librarians develop poetry collections, readership, and setting up programs in libraries. But that started all in New York Public Library, Queens Public Library, Brooklyn Public Library. And then, you know, they got up and running. The financial landscape changed. Libraries' budgets aren't what they were. And now it's part of a national initiative that we um, fund through NEH grants and do specific exhibitions and specially focused programming. So we have one on view right now called Muslim, Vo- Muslim Voices. It's about poetry from the Muslim world. And that is programs, a beautiful exhibition, and a website with all this amazing poetry from many languages, but especially from Turkish, Arabic, Persian, and, um, and Urdu. So it's, it's an amazing program, and that is how PITB was reinvented to stay alive. Our own programming here it has tended to be really focused on conversation and dialogue, so we don't do a straight reading series like many venues, but do uh, events that look at the history of poetry, look at how poets think, read, and understand poetry. So one of our main series is called Passwords, which is poets talking about a poet of influence or import to them. So last week we had Stephen Dobbins talking about the work of James Wright. For our 25th anniversary last year, we did 40-some-odd programs on the history of poetry, starting with Gilgamesh and ending with The Beats and Had Poets. Many of them were passwords, some open seminars, some panel discussions, and we moved chronologically, so everything fell into place. And we, David Ferry was here, just won the National Book Award, you know, sharing his thoughts on Gilgamesh, and we worked our way up through Sanskrit and Chinese poetry and up to the birth of the sonnet and the rise of lyric poetry in Europe and Great Britain and Shakespeare and then over to America and Basho and Haiku and it was this amazing, mm-hmm. amazing sequence. But that in itself marked a reinvention and re- revisioning of what we'd come up with 20 years earlier. So it's constantly, I think, being flexible but being well grounded because there's always something that's newer, chicer, faster and cooler than what you're doing mm-hmm. and those those are the fads come and go you know how it's like you know five years ago everyone thought the book would die you know everyone will have an e-reader and books will be dead and now people think well there's still places for books mm-hmm. it's the same thing with the records you yeah. know 
The book is one of the oldest technologies. Poetry is the, perhaps the oldest art form. I think we're, you know, I think our our tenants are solid. I guess the, the most important question facing you then is is the relevancy of of poetry and this suggestion that whereas a hundred years ago it it was perhaps as prevalent as as television or the mm-hmm. internet now it's it's very much uh, well this is this is the question not an elitist but poetry being written for the poets versus poetry being written for the public uh, I imagine you're involved in that debate sure I mean I think the role of poetry is different from what was a hundred years ago and you know when my grandfather was uh, ill and dying and could no longer had no longer memory a recent conversation he had a storehouse of poems that memorized together carried them around with him exactly and that was in an age where the, you're right there was no television he was born before radio was really something mm-hmm. prevalent there was certainly no computing so the way poetry has rested and represented what its job is which is that it has an important way of condensing and rending something that a community, individual culture is going through into a, into a special musical language or a, a literary language or a poetic language, mm-hmm. I don't think we nef- necessarily know where that is. I don't think it's settled down. I don't think the poetry of our time has emerged, how it will exist. So it's a, it's a, it's a, I think it's a period of great excitement. And tension. And tension. But because of the rise of MFA culture and the ease of book publication, actually, and the internet there's sort of been a proliferation of poets and poetry. So on the one hand, poetry is maybe a smaller bracket in relation to the general public. But on another hand, poetry itself is greatly expanded. And the number of poets is is much larger than it's ever been. So it's part of our participatory age. 90% of Americans think they have a book in them, meaning writing a book. How many people (laughs) write books for Kindle? And I mean, it's in some ways, it's very exciting. It's the same thing about everyone being able to play the piano and carry a tune in their dining room. You know, it, it's different now. People can make music on their computers. You mm-hmm. know, they can sample things and create songs that become number one hits. You know, the rules are so different, and I think poetry is as implicated in that as anything, whether it's be the novel or the painting or traditional filmmaking mm-hmm. um, or the, a play. I think it's all kind of in an up-for-grabs, shifting mode. And that, yes, it is a, it's a time of tumult and possibility, and uh, some things are lost and other things are gained. And um, I think most people think poetry is in a really exciting mode now, even, even with all that change. And, you know, Poets House has always been dedicated to the widest definition of poetry, so some people think Democratic, that, yeah. Yeah, some people think hip hop is the great poetic contribution of the last thirty years. And that's listened to more by more people than anything. So is it's it maybe it's spoken word and the oral tradition, you know, maybe it isn't right now. Maybe the poem on the page doesn't have the same reach it did a hundred years ago, but there will be another page, another kind of page and another kind of poem that does. So I think it's again it's about that flexibility and that openness. To, to listen and to be aware and to be patient because all this stuff, you know, in the four years we've been here, you know, it's different. Even in, in the 10 years I've been here, it's different. And the 27 years Poets House has existed, it's changed and will continue. And just finally, where is here? Well, we're located in Battery Park City in Lower Manhattan. Our physical address is 10 River Terrace 
which is at the corner of Murray and River Terrace. And this part of Battery Park City was built on the fill from the first World Trade Center towers. So in the late 60s, it was conceived. And for many years, this area was just it was open fill. And then after the towers fell in 2001, there was a real effort to finish the development down here and build out the rest of this part of the landfill and this part of Battery Park City. And that's how we came to be here, because Battery Park City has a pretty progressive vision for nonprofits um, and non-commercial spaces being included in the urban fabric. So when our building, which is the last residential tower to go into construction, uh, wasn't the last completed, but it was the last to be planned, there was spaces for three nonprofits. And we were very fortunate to be invited to apply. We had done programming down here in the early 90s when this area had nothing. So the, the authority knew us. And we were in a position as institutionally to be able to extend ourselves to raise the money necessary to come down here. And I know we have these 11,000 square feet of, you know, we have an incredible view. We have a whole block. It's right on a park. On the Hudson River and the park. Rockefeller yeah. Park. It's really an oasis for people in New York that come down here, and they work for the day. You can bring food and drinks. We have great Wi-Fi. You know, <laughs> not just the books. We know right. new technologies are important. So, And then right. there's a branch of the New York Public Library right across the garden space. So they're here as well. Um, so between us and the NYPL, you can get all your library needs met. You've just made a great case for uh, literary tourists coming here. Thanks so much. Thank you.